0: This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ, in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Appreciate our visitors that are here, all the song leaders, the prayer, uh, the opening remarks. Um, it's just a wonderful opportunity to come together on the Lord's Day and worship Him. And we are engaged in our study of Revelation, and we've reached the point of Thyatira, which is a cautionary tale, and it sort of builds on the last uh, lesson that we gave on the, in this series on Pergamos, as you'll see. Uh, You're especially going to need your Bibles this morning since I can't get this computer to turn on. So if you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 29. This will be our text verse for this morning. Well, we'll just do it without, like old stuff here. All right, so uh, starting in verse 18, and under the church... Or unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye already have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thyatira was located. About uh, 25 miles southeast of Pergamos, and it was founded by Seleucus Nicator, that was one of the generals of Alexander. It was a garrison city built on the plains. Uh, it had no natural fortifications, and it was captured, destroyed, and rebuilt many times. There are coins that were found in its ruins that have a horseman bearing a double-bladed axe, which indicates it started out as a cavalry post. Thyatira, at the time of this epistle, was an important manufacturing city. Its citizens being mostly poor and humble laborers, just the opposite of those that we saw in Pergamos. The workmen of Thyatira were organized into labor unions or guilds. Now, the two leading industries were the manufacture of instruments of brass, bronze, and other metals, and the manufacture and dyeing of cloth, especially of the royal purple. Homer speaks about the dyeing of red and purple cloth as being characteristic of that city. There are several inscriptions that bear uh, that mention dyers and guilds that have been found, and agents would travel all over the world selling Thyatira and cloth. In fact, in uh, Philippi of Macedonia, the Apostle Paul brought the gospel to a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. That's Acts sixteen twelve through fourteen. It's believed that the local church of Thyatira may have even owed. Uh, much of its success and origin to the labors of Lydia after she returned home. Now, if you look at verse 18 of our text, Christ introduces himself to the angel of the church in Thyatira, or the elders, as the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. This language was very familiar to people who labored in foundries and with their flaming furnaces. For the Thyatirans... Their craft was symbolic of powerful, sometimes royal, authorities. It was here that the richness of the empire was quite literally produced, having been entrusted to the talented craftsmen there. Verse 19 of our text, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. As an analogy, I want you to think of Thyatira as a butler- And the staff of a lord's estate, the butler in this analogy would be the elders of the church, and the staff would be all the other servants or the members of that of that church. The butler is the one who's responsible to meet the visitors at the door. He's a keeper of the gate, as it were, and he oversees the day-to-day affairs of the church or the estate. In this example, now a good butler is priceless. He has so internalized the desires and commands of his Lord that he knows exactly what that Lord wants. He has the experience, the bearing, the standards, and the loyalty necessary to act in the Lord's stead. There's an immense amount of trust placed in the the butler by the Lord, and when the butler does his job well, it keeps things running decently and in order. That's why the butler is the chief member of the staff in a Lord's estate. Now, Jesus he takes the time to acknowledge past service to him and his kingdom. They've done good works. They've shown him to be a charitable Lord in how they've executed the estate. They've served him faithfully, and they patiently trust him. In fact, Jesus knows that they have progressed in their works rather than stagnating. Consider that no matter what chastisement may follow for this church, Jesus starts by pointing out the good things they began with and then how they progressed and built upon those things. This is something Jesus cares about. There's no cruise control feature in a good church. There's no point where we've arrived, as it were, where we're simply called to maintain whatever it is that we've already done. What pleases the Lord is when His church continually seeks ways to further grow the church and to build upon what they've done in great works for His glory problem with the cruise control mindset is that we become careless and vulnerable when we do so. Returning to our example of the butler, think of his responsibility to the estate. Every day, it's the butler's job to inspect the work of the staff. Have they properly cared for that priceless antique? You know, perhaps up till now, he's not received, uh, he's not received any kind of, uh, he's not seen a speck of dust anywhere. And so maybe he'll say to himself, I've established a standard. The staff has consistently demonstrated that they understand that standard. Therefore, it's not important for me any longer to inspect it every day. Well, what follows that line of thinking is simply inevitable due to fallen human nature. As the staff begins to shirk their duties, they instead take to drinking the Lord's wine. Eating the Lord's food, lounging about in the Lord's furniture, dressing in the Lord's garments. They take for themselves the money of the Lord that He leaves with them in trust. Instead of attending to their duties, they're they're found playing and cavorting. When thieves and 'er ne'er-do-wells would come to do harm, rather than chase them off, they invite them in. Eventually, even the butler may join in. Now, what will the Lord think of the state of affairs when he returns to that estate. This analogy encapsulates what we're going to see in Thyatira this morning. It's why Christ chooses a very specific title for himself. It is the only time that the title, the Son of God, is used in these seven epistles to the churches. So what did the preeminent Son of God find when he examined Thyatira? Verse 20 says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because... Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Unfaithfulness to God is oftentimes referred to as fornication because throughout scriptures the covenant relation between God and his people is represented by marriage. So any transgression to God's word is a form of spiritual adultery, harlotry, or fornication. And what we see here in Thyatira is very likely actual fornication as well as spiritual fornication as the result of a form of idolatry that was prevalent in those times. The Bible tells us that one Jezebel was behind this. I believe this Jezebel is both an actual person and is also symbolic because the name Jezebel has a history in the Bible now when Jesus says she called herself a prophetess we understand his meaning to be that she had usurped this title erroneously and was a false prophet this Jezebel and by extension the church had presumed prerogatives that belonged alone to the son of God Jezebel was probably not her actual name but her actions symbolically linked her to the Jezebel of the Old Testament nevertheless. It says she claimed the title of prophetess, but she was really just an adulterous imposter. In those days, there were fertility cults and the worship of false gods. And people would engage in fornication with temple prostitutes like they did in Ephesus and Pergamos. In our study of Pergamus, we saw a church that was being tempted by the doctrine of Balaam essentially this was the same doctrine that Jezebel was peddling and Pergamus was only just being introduced to this temptation but in Thyatira we see a more advanced sickness this church actively claimed Christ while simultaneously participating in these pagan practices of Rome and it was blasphemy Jezebel came into the church and she persuaded this compromise By declaring herself a prophet of the Lord. You see, she claimed special and additional knowledge beyond that which the apostles had given. And this is precisely what concerned Paul so greatly that he said, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's Galatians 1, verse 8. Paul went on to repeat himself in verse 9 because he felt so strongly about this. And I just want to ask, How often have you seen or have you been guilty of, you've been given a warning by an elder, a parent, someone with authority above you, and you failed to take it seriously. I can imagine people thinking that Paul was just too uptight. Paul's just a withered old man who was always holding something back. He's always preventing you from having fun. Perhaps they felt they knew better than Paul. And so they ignored him to their great peril in verse 21 of Revelation 2 and I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not here we see the Lord's great mercy on display even for a spiritual Jezebel he'd long known there was a stranger in his halls but he had delayed in confronting her so that she might repent of her trespassing but you see Jezebel was a rebellious squatter and she refused him now In the world of real estate, there is not much worse than a squatter. A squatter not only trespasses, a squatter destroys, abuses, and utterly uses up a property. But that isn't the worst part of a squatter. The worst part is that you can't get rid of them. There are some places where it's actually illegal to get a a person illegally in your residence out. And what the, this, this is just a perversion of justice. And so what the owner of the property has to do is they have to try to trick this person to leave so that they can go into their own home, or they have to try to convince them to leave. And as you can imagine, this rarely works. And as a result, the property owner is left feeling trapped and helpless. They own the property, but they don't control it. In the church of Thyatira, they had the rights and the keys to the kingdom of Christ, but they had lost control to this squatter, Jezebel. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, after one gets in bed with the devil, so to speak, they're subject to blackmail. Sin enslaves a person not only because of its addictive qualities, but also because it's hard to rail against the system in which you are a part of. What credibility is left to speak out against a problem if you're an active participant or an enabler of that problem. In Thyatira, elders and all, they had forfeited their credibility and their authority to Jezebel. This is a great danger that we have to be constantly aware of. You know, when you tolerate the presence of sin in your midst under the false assumption that you can control it, that it won't influence you, Control of the body, the proper teaching of doctrine, and even eternal security can be wrested away from a person or a group or a church. I want to look a little bit at what type of person this squatter Jezebel was. What drives her? What's her character? I believe there's a few traits that we can identify. For thousands of years now, Jezebel has been a name that people knew. She has the reputation of being the wickedest of women. She's been denounced as a murderer, a prostitute, an enemy of God, and her name has been adopted from everything from lingerie lines to World War II, missiles alike. I've seen on social media references to Jezebel, and it's never condemning her. No, it's, oh, she's such a bad person, she's cool. Such wickedness and yet she's romanticized. This is because, first and foremost, a spiritual Jezebel has a manipulative character. The first aspect of her character is that was manifest when she manipulated the church of Thyatira in the same way that Jezebel of the Old Testament did to King Ahab. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. We're going to read verses 25 through 26. 1 Kings 21, 25 through 26. But there was none like unto Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. In a minute we're going to move to 1 Kings 16 if you want to get start turning there. Jezebel, daughter of King Ethbaal of Tyre, was brought to the northern kingdom of Israel to wed the newly crowned King Ahab around the 9th century B.C. He was the king of the Phoenicians, and Phoenicians worshipped a variety of gods and goddesses. Chief among them was Baal. He was the head fertility and agricultural god of the Canaanites. According to Josephus, Ethbaal served as a priest to Astarte, the primary Phoenician goddess. You're going to see throughout all pagan history that there's always there's a variety of male gods, but there's always one recurring uh, female goddess with different names. It's always the same person. She's represented by poles and groves and things like that. In the Bible, it's always the same though. Now, um, since Ethbaal, her father, was a priest to Astarte or Asherah, Jezebel was probably serving as a priestess as well as she grew up. But in any case, she was certainly raised to honor the deities of her native land. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 31-33. through 33. And it came to pass, as if, had, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, And went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Talk about a honeymoon. Imagine Ahab and Jezebel are married and her influence on him was so great that the first thing recorded that Ahab does after they're married is to go worship Baal in a brand new temple that he had built. And then he goes and he creates a a grove where they would worship and participate in fornication and such, this goddess Astarte, or Asherah. Heed this warning. Whether it is Satan downplaying the warning of God in the garden, or the Nicolaitans downplaying the importance of separation from the world, or whether it's Jezebel convincing Ahab that it doesn't matter if you worship multiple gods, the tempter always manipulates the situation to frame the good and cut out the bad. It was nothing for Ahab to do these things, it says, to commit idolatry and fornication in the form of these pagan fertility rites once Jezebel came into the picture. Because despite the fact that he was a king, He still had an inherent weakness towards sin. And that is what Jezebel exploited. We all have this same weakness. Why would it be any different for Thyatira? From her point of view, Jezebel was no apostate. She remained loyal to her religious upbringings. And she was determined to maintain her cultural identity. In Thyatira, this symbolic Jezebel would not be prepared to give up her pagan Roman ways any more than the ancient Jezebel was going to give up Baal and Astarte and Thyatira wasn't willing to give up Christ else why continue to call yourself the church so what good could possibly come from this union Paul addressed this question in 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 17 2nd Corinthians 6 14 through 17 he says And then we're told, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and then I will receive you. Understand that just as there was an innate unwillingness on the part of someone like Jezebel to change, there is also a motive on their part to change others to be like them. They don't coexist. The character of Jezebel is manipulative. And therefore, we have to separate ourselves from it. And that takes you to her second character trait I want to discuss, and that is that she was dominating in nature. There's so much that I would like to say about the state of our world and the things going on that I'm not going to for the sake of time, but I want you to be thinking about our current world and the spirit of Jezebel that currently resides in it and how manipulating and dominating it is, and you can see the fruits of what it's doing. Jezebel soon became the dominant power behind Ahab and the kingdom of Israel. She forced her will on others through whatever means that she could. You can read in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, that Jezebel cut off or killed the prophets of the Lord. She didn't have a coexist bumper sticker on her chariot. She didn't want tolerance for her gods. What she wanted was their total dominance over all else. Now this same desire to dominate was evident in Thyatira, and we see it in the modern spirit of Jezebel as well. Such a spirit doesn't seek tolerance, and it doesn't start out trying to dominate you. I mean, if you see the hammer coming, you might try to dodge it. It starts out being manipulative, And once it's got you in its grasp, then it dominates. It seeks to shut down and remove true men and women of God. It starts by turning your gaze away from the Lord, and then it takes you down a very dark path indeed. Thing is, though, this spirit of Jezebel that we're discussing, it's not honest about this goal in the beginning. It only manifests once you've lost control to it and then it's true colors begin to show eventually this push for dominance is going to lead to a divine confrontation turn to first Kings chapter 18 we're going to be in chapter 18 for a while first Kings 18 verse 20 the threat of Jezebel is so great that Elijah confronts God's wayward people and he says how long halt ye between two opinions if the Lord be God follow him if Baal then follow him and the people answered him not a word Jesus presented the same issue to Thyatira in a different way he said and I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not by remaining silent by not taking a stand for the truth both the Israelites in the Old Testament and Thyatira in the new made their decision and it was not for God it was for Baal The message here is clear we must must take a stand for the truth and the truth of his word paul says we're to live peaceably with all men when it's within our power doesn't he you know what he also says he says cast out false teaching and those who take part in it elijah decided to take a stand against manipulative dominating jezebel and the result was really quite astounding So he issues a challenge between Baal and God to set a sacrificial bull on fire in 1 Kings 18. It's only then that we learn just how many followers of Jezebel were at her side, near her at court. Elijah challenges them. He says in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal 450, and the prophets of the groves 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel wasn't alone. She made sure her influence was everywhere. While Elijah was truly alone, she sought to still dominate the religious field and overwhelm the followers of God with 850 false prophets. 850 versus one man. Do you think that you're not important enough to be actively sought after by the spirit of Jezebel in this world, you're wrong. You mark my words, you log into Facebook, you start scrolling through the little reels, and it won't be too long that you'll suddenly see the algorithm start to feed you things that are completely inappropriate, that by their own rules are supposedly not there because you're being sought out. Just you, just one, being sought out on all sides by 850 different villainous apostates, false prophets. It's happening. It'll happen to you today. For some of us, it may have happened on our way to church, trying to derail what we come here to do to worship God. It is the nature of sinful men to overwhelm you. Their tactics are shock and awe. You may may well find yourself standing alone, surrounded by overwhelming opposition, and yet you must stand. Knowing that while the enemy is blustering about using shock and awe, the steady power of God often manifests in a still, small voice and is often not uh, in obvious view. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 26 and 29 tell us that these prophets of Baal performed sort of a hopping dance about the altar. See, I don't have my slides, so now I've got to be the slideshow. And while they're doing this, hopping around this circular altar, most likely, they're ranting and raving, and they do this all day long in a vain attempt to rouse Baal. They, they start cutting themselves with knives, and blood is covering them, gushing over them. And they're, they're whooping it up in a heightened emotional state, hoping to incite Baal to unleash a great fire. But this bull would not burn. Having tried all day long, the 450 prophets of Baal finally shut up and stepped back. And when all that chaos had finally subsided, Elijah steps up, and I just love this story. He orders that water be poured on the wood. Now, it, would, it already wouldn't catch fire, so he says, pour some water on that wood and that bull. Not just once, not twice, three times. And we read that there was so much water that it ran all over the place. That's going to be impossible to light, right? Yes, right, it is. You're not going to like that. So Elijah does the only sensible thing at this point, seeing this, and he adds even more water. He fills the trench of the altar up with water, and one gets the impression that now there is more water present than there is sacrifice to burn. And then, standing before all 850 of those false prophets, Elijah cries out the following verses 36 to 39 Lord God of Abraham Isaac and Israel let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word hear me O Lord hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again then fire f- fire of the Lord fell consume the burnt sacrifice And the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw it they fell on their faces and they said the Lord he is God the Lord he is God they're scared to death I'm sure (laughs) this isn't like the Lord he is God no it's like the Lord he's God we're scared it took only one request by Elijah to achieve what hours of foolish, idiotic appeals by a bunch of wicked men couldn't do all day long. That fire not only lit the soaking wet wood, the bull, but it burned up a small pond worth of water and then melted the stones away as well. He didn't just light the thing on fire. It wasn't some trick. This was supernatural fire. God made himself known. So after winning this contest, Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. That's chapter 18, verse 40 of 1 Kings. Does this seem rash to you? A little too Old Testament for anyone's tastes? I only ask because I hear many modern churches facing their own Jezebels saying just that. I just watched Piers Morgan interview Dr. Jordan Peterson, uh, if you know who those people are. Who Dr. Peterson is a recent convert to Christ, and he's still learning, but he's got some understanding of some things. And or, no, it wasn't him. It was uh, sorry. I, I watch a lot. This was uh, Franklin Graham, or yeah, I think it was Franklin Graham. But Piers Morgan was asking him. About homosexuality and whether or not he's like, you know, the times have changed. Wouldn't you say that? Times have changed. There's a lot of things in the Bible that we would never do now, that we would never condone, that are no longer in the Lord's nature. In fact, it seems to me that the God of the Old Testament isn't even the same God in the New Testament. These are actual arguments that are out there. So if someone feels that way, <clears throat> let's go to New Testament Jesus instead. I imagine he handles things much better than old Elijah of the patriarchy did, right? Let's look at Jesus' words to Thyatira. Back to our text, Revelation chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Jesus is speaking. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. Who are her children? Well, you could say that it's the unholy... Uh, uh, progeny of fornication, but what it really means, her children are her followers. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. This is the Mount Carmel experience of Thyatira. And while Elijah was the one carrying out the work of punishment in the Old Testament, It is now Jesus himself. So yes, things have changed. You and I aren't going to go out and take people to a brook and slay them, but Jesus is. Jesus is. I want to really drive this message home. When it comes to false doctrine, false teachers, false gods, spiritual adultery, allowing sin into our midst, claiming there are many truths for different people, Jesus is not playing around anymore in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament. And that's a fact. It will not be tolerated. It will not be overlooked. And it will be destroyed. Right along with all those who embrace it. Do you recall us reading earlier Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says to let any false teachers be accursed or cast out from among us? Listen to what he says a little later in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Now he's addressing the people who fail to do that. He says, "Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap." Ahab mocked God, Jezebel mocked God, the prophets of Baal mocked God. When the church of Thyatira welcomed Jezebel into their midst, they were mocking God. And Jesus warns there is a reckoning coming from him Christ is willing to get personally involved in judging punishing and destroying cancers within his body the church and here's the thing that you need to be aware of he's willing to do that prior to the judgment day in his second coming did you know that all not all punishments are reserved for judgment day proof that of this is uh, you can see an example of it in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep or have died why did they die they died because they were abusing the Lord's Supper sometimes the punishment for sin comes long before the Great Judgment Day Jesus said to Thyatira he's gonna throw Jezebel and anyone else in that church that doesn't repent into a sick bed in great tribulation. And friends, a sick bed, spiritually and sometimes even physically, is exactly where sin will take you. That's why I say this is a cautionary tale in Thyatira. It's almost as if in Pergamos Jesus says, Be on the watch. Look for this stuff. Do something about it when you see it. And if you choose not to heed that warning, Look at Thyatira, and you can see what's going to happen to you. Now, as we've been going through all these different churches, you might remember Smyrna. And you'll remember this was the suffering church, and their tribulation was a result of their faithfulness. And it was a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. But in Thyatira, their suffering was a result of the continual stench of their sin. Before the Lord now when this message was read to Thyatira I have no doubt that people began to wonder if their secrets were out had anyone seen them engaged with Jezebel was their secret safe did I remember to delete that internet history on the computer did I remember to park behind the bar before I went in to hang out with my friends are my secrets out has anyone seen me Well, Christ says, don't bother. I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So often, we submit to sin because everybody else is doing it, and we're surrounded by it. We're dominated by the crowd. We're dominated by the spirit of Jezebel. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of speed traps on the highway. We see 10 cars speed by. And we think, I'm going to speed two. They can't catch us all. So you lay your foot on that pedal, and before you know it, you find RoboCop, who somehow manages to stop all ten cars at once. And then you have the rubbernecks hitting the brakes, turning their head, watching this this line of shame on the side of the road. And it's something to behold. I mean, it must be because they're about to cause an accident for all their rubbernecking to see what's going on, right? And does that cop just write one ticket and then split it equally amongst the ten people he pulled over? No. He writes a full ticket to each of them. And so too Christ is going to find, in his words, every one of you according to your works. Don't let spiritual Jezebel dominate you and don't think that she's not trying to. We say she, but this is not a woman problem. Spirit of Jezebel is something greater than that the third and last character of Jezebel I want to look at is that she is relentless after Elijah's triumph on Mount Carmel Jezebel receives the news that Baal is defeated and her prophets are all dead but she will not relent because she's relentless first Kings chapter 19 verse 2 then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. There's no idle threat. It's another example in Je- there's another example in Jezebel's story we don't have uh, the time to go into. I really struggle to keep this lesson in a, in a certain time frame because there's so much information. But Naboth had a vineyard, refuses to sell it to Ahab, and she has him murdered. Again and again, we see the relentless nature of Jezebel. You deny her, and she's going to double down. Her assault will never end. Think about what's happening to Donald Trump. We're not going to talk politics too much, but just, just you think about that. And ask, think for a minute if that isn't a manifestation of a spirit of Jezebel relentless. And this is a frightening and exhausting thing to face an enemy, isn't it? When Elijah heard Jezebel's uh, threatening words, he fled in fear for his life. Even after that great victory, he I mean, he knows God's on his side. It still scared him and wore him out. Now there was a remnant of the faithful in Thyatira in this same position. And Jesus is going to address them in verse 24 of our text. He says, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, unto you I will put upon you none other burden. Christ is speaking when he says, Who's he speaking to? I would just put it that way. The answer is found in the term depths of Satan. There's some wordplay here that I'm not going into this morning, but the word depths here is the same word that's translated deep in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10. It says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God, to those who haven't gone down this path and just given themselves to it. Unto you, unto the rest in Thyatira, you're like Elijah in the Old Testament. These are the people who are unwilling to be subjected to this dominant power of Jezebel and God recognizes that they're overwhelmed and they're subjugated by the evil surrounding them. Perhaps you've felt that way before in a place of employment or as it relates to our government. You hate what's happening but you're powerless to do anything about it because like the elders in Thyatira, the people in positions of power and authority refuse to do anything. And if you want a good little study, you can go find out what God says to civil servant leaders who fail to use to do their duty and what's going to happen to them. God is promising in verse 24 of our text to treat these people the same way he did Elijah. These dominated people they, that, that are powerless to do anything. They're worn out. Let's read the account of what that is. How do we know what that is? Let's look what God did for Elijah, because that's what He's saying in our text. First Kings chapter 19, verses three through eight. And when he saw that, Elijah, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, "It is enough." Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Meaning, he's not some superhuman, he's just human, and he can't take it anymore. That's what he means. Continuing in verse 5, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him, and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and, and he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. He's still exhausted. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. So what we see here is that when Elijah was mentally and physically exhausted by his struggle against a manipulative, dominating relentless Jezebel and he was simply ready to die God gave him a reprieve an angel was sent to minister to him to feed him give him water allow him to rest not once but twice now think about that an angel could have gotten the job done in one trip but what God is expressing here is that I will be with you from the beginning to the end I'll help you as many times as is needed And I am mindful of your, that you're feeble and frail. And you know, he gave him something, a baked piece of food and some water out in the wilderness. Nothing special. It wasn't like he's getting veal parmesan or something. It's just a baked piece of bread and some water. But that food carried Elijah, we're told, 40 days and 40 nights. Now that number is significant. In the Bible, 40 typically uh, represents a trial or test. You can see this in the examples of Noah and the ark. You can see it with Jesus fasting in the wilderness. And you can see it here with Elijah as he's off recuperating from Jezebel. And what that means is that God's grace is fully sufficient to carry us through the entirety of the trial. All of it. In our full strength. That's a message of great hope. God does the same thing for the faithful in Thyatira when he points to their trial with Jezebel and says, I will put upon you none other burden. That is to say, no further affliction or tribulation than the present one. And then he continues in uh, verse 25, But hold fast what you have till I come, indicating he will also give no other precept or command regarding this this matter. In other words, Christ is saying, I'm not going to give you any new tribulations, any other prophecies of doom, I'm not going to give you any additional precepts or things to worry about. There will be no new commandments. All you need to do is hold the line on what I've already given you, what I've already told you, and know that you will be, you will be and have been fed, watered, and rested by Jesus Christ. God. That's just like what the angel did for Elijah. There was a beginning to the trial and there would be an end. Christ will sustain us, and that promise extends to you and I as well. So, as we conclude, <clears throat> to summarize this message, it's a twofold message, really. First of all, there is a spirit of Jezebel that pervades this world and which seeks to penetrate the church. This is a manipulating, dominating, relentless spirit that will persistently tempt us to form an adulterous relationship with the world. It is the next phase of that doctrine of Balaam that we studied. The second part of the message is that love does not tolerate falsehood. Please hear me on this. Love, the kind of love that Christ has for the church and the kind of love that we are called to reciprocate, remains committed to the truth of God's word for the sake of everybody. If you tolerate falsehood, you commit spiritual fornication, you unite yourself as one flesh with that which seeks to destroy you. You don't love what you actively destroy by supporting lies. A parent that would mutilate their child in support of a lie does not love them. We don't love by supporting lies. So you don't get caught up. And how's it going to make somebody feel if I challenge them? No chastisement is enjoyable for the present. But in the end, will give you life. If you love, you must stand for the truth. If the elders of Thyatira had loved Jezebel, they would have rebuked her. And had they done that, perhaps she would have repented When Jesus gave her the opportunity to do so. Instead, Jezebel fell and she brought the whole church of Thyatira down with her. Never, never tolerate or compromise with sin. Stand firm on the truth of God's word, even when it brings you great tribulation, because even if you get tired and worn out, Christ will be there to minister to you. Now, we're going to be studying verses 26 through 28 of our text in a future lesson, as I've already said. But as we close now, I'd like to draw your attention to the built in invitation that's with every church uh, in Revelation. Verse 29 of our text He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If you need to be baptized to become a member of Christ's church, or if you need help extricating yourself from that web, that the spirit of Jezebel is constantly spinning in our life. You're going to need some help. You know what's weird about a spider and a web? You go see a web in your window, you knock it out, and then it's there again. You knock it out, it's there again. You know what you have to do is you get rid of the spider. Sometimes you need a little help with that. Maybe it's a shop vac to get in that little crevice, and suck that thing out of there and stop the web from forming again. That may be you this morning. Don't be so ashamed to come forward and ask for help that you allow the spider to creep forward and feast on you. It would be my message to you this morning. If there be one of either case, we ask you to come forward and have a seat on this front bench as we stand and sing the invitation song.